2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. We're going to be reading down to verse 21 today, okay? This is what the Word of God says. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we pray that in this glorious passage of Scripture, that we would see something of what it means to have an honorable character, what it means to have an honorable ministry, and what it means to be a good leader in your church. That's really what this whole chapter, this whole section rather, is all about. This is, these are quality brothers, quality leaders in the church, and help us to learn so much from them today. I pray for your people today. I pray that you would encourage them as they hear these words. I pray that as people who may not consider themselves to be uh, leaders in the church, that they wouldn't tune out, but that they would look to these virtues, that they would look to these qualities so that they can incorporate as much of that as possible into their own life. Please bless your word in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This is going to be a two-part uh, sermon series and uh, yet another trendy word, right, sermon series. Everybody's always doing series, right? But they usually, you know, are series like how to lose weight or, you know, how to, you know, finance your money, you know, uh, manage your money or something like that, which uh, I guess there's nothing wrong with talking about losing weight in the church. I guess that would fall into the area of self-control. Anyway. Uh, but it is a series. No, it's not a seeker-sensitive series. It is an exegetical series because we come smack dab in the middle of a section that really cannot be, uh, uh, cannot be broken up. It has to be taken together. If you look at verse 22, the, uh, the Apostle Paul is going to introduce yet another brother. And so right there, it's one brother after another in quick succession. You have Titus. You have one unnamed brother. And then in verse 22, you have another unnamed brother. And all of them have to do with this issue of leadership, with this issue of the gift, the collection, the Jerusalem contribution to the saints, the poor saints in Jerusalem. But, <coughs> excuse me, but in the midst of this, not surprising, the Apostle Paul takes great liberty to commend the character of these men. It would have been so easy for him just to say, look, we are sending Titus and two brothers to you. But he doesn't do that, does he? He goes into it a little bit. He gets into their character. He fills in some details that otherwise didn't need to be written down, but they are written for our instruction. They are here for our benefit. And so, 
That is what we're going to be looking at, principles and biblical leadership, principles and biblical. So in other words, Paul doesn't just tell us that he's sending these guys. He's actually telling us why he's sending these guys. He's sending these guys because they're quality guys. He's sending these guys because they're fit for the mission at hand. Now let's begin with the very first thing, as Paul gives us several reasons why leaders like this should be commended. Number one, because biblical leadership demands genuine zeal. Look at uh, verses 16 and 17 again. It says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. So Paul begins this whole section first, if you notice there, by thanking God for good leaders. Isn't that amazing? He says, thanks be to God who puts these things in the hearts of men like Titus. That is what true leadership is all about. God doing a work in the heart of an individual. That's when you know you have a real leader on your hand. God has done a work in his heart. And so therefore, God is to be thanked. God is to be praised. And isn't that so true today? We ought to thank God for good leaders in the church because they are rare. Because men like this are rare. We know that. Philippians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says, look, uh, in terms of leadership, in terms of concern for a biblical ministry, I have no one else of kindred spirit except for Timothy. That's amazing. Philippians chapter 2, rather, verse 18. That's just amazing to me that Paul looked around at the various people around him and he says, no one, there's no one who shares my heart for the local church. And, and, and really prepare yourselves, get yourselves ready because this whole section is about the local church. If you don't have a high view of the local church, you're at a step with Paul here. Because Paul speaks all that he speaks in this passage and in all other passages like this with a presupposition of a high view of the local church in God's estimation. And therefore, what we're looking at here is real quality leadership for the church. These are not just inspirational speakers. These are not just motivational uh, speaker, guest speakers that come and blow in, blow in and out of churches. These are ministers that are inextricably connected to the local church. And you know what? That is where true leadership is tested, is it not? It's in the local church. How many men I have met over the years, and even in this church, you know, we've been a church now for about a year. I can't tell you how many brothers have blown through this little church already telling me that they have all these qualities, they have all these ministries, they have all these reasons why they're right and everybody else is wrong. And guess what? They are not in the local church. Just amazing. One brother came here. I haven't been part of a church in four years, but I know what a real church should be like. <laughs> Could there be a greater oxymoron than that? No, my brothers and sisters, we are to be part of God's church. When God saves us, He doesn't save us to leave us in isolation. He saves us to put us into a community of God's people where we can be refined, where our character can be tested, where sanctification can be observed, where you can't hide over in the corner without somebody getting all in your business. 
The church is all about people getting up in your business, getting involved in your life, and not just letting you live the way you want to live. If you don't like accountability, you certainly will not like a biblical church. Oh, I say biblical church because there are plenty of churches that you can go and attend and you can blow in and blow out and hardly anyone will take notice that you've even visited. But in a biblical church with biblical membership and biblical leadership and biblical principles, you cannot get away with things, right? We're not, uh, we're not, we're not snoopy. We're not going around tattletelling on people, right? But we are nosy in a holy way. We want to know, how are you doing in the Lord? You looked a little off this Sunday, like something wasn't right. Far be it from us to just take note of that and just let that brother and sister go their way. For all we know, their marriage can be in shambles. For all we know, their finances can be in dire straits. For all we know, there are all sorts of sin issues going on that need to be confronted in love. See, that is the difference between a true church, my dear friends, and people who are just playing church, just playing church, just getting together for the sake of getting together, just getting together for the sake of having something for your kids to do during the day, just getting together for the sake of moralism because they're just good moral principles to abide by. But I tell you, when sin and character issues are at stake, when your character is being refined and it hurts, that's when you know, Lord willing, that you're in a good church. I love it. Paul was such a minister, and that's why he can commend these kind of ministers, because he knows what genuine ministers are supposed to look like. He knows that God is at work in them. So that's the very first mark. Thanksgiving to God because God has provided these earnest ministers for the church. And he dispatches them because they are thus zealous. He says, for God puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. In other words, he gave Titus a heart for the Corinthians. That's what that's saying. And he uses the word earnest, which can be translated zeal. But it is not translated zeal because the word zealous is much more the word for zeal. But the word spudos that he uses here, this word here actually is a little different. It implies not just zeal in the way that we might think, but it implies diligence. It implies principle. It implies character. That's what it implies. So Paul, being very cautious in the way that he's talking here, he, he wants to make it known that he has taken notice of these men's characteristics, of their virtues, of their, of their qualities. He's taken note. And so we start with zeal. Genuine zeal, we could say, comes from God, right? It is imparted by God. It is given to Titus. It is put in his heart. It is a work of God. And the reason I stress that so much, because false zeal is all over the place. You can have people who are emotional for emotion's sake. You can have people that are zealous, listen now, for zealous sake, for zeal's sake, just for the sake of being zealous, just for the sake of being, you know, animated and being preoccupied. But as we're going to go on to find out, zeal has a purpose. But the very foundation of zeal itself is God. God gives his people zeal, and zeal is an experience 
explosive thing, is it not? Zeal is all over the Bible. It's everywhere. From beginning to end, you see the, the zeal of God's people all over. Uh, you know that zeal cannot be separated from faith. You cannot step out in zeal if it's not birthed from genuine faith. And if you have genuine faith, it must express itself in zeal to some degree or another. For example, we could say it was zeal that led Abraham to obey the call of God and leave Ur. It was zeal that drove the spies to do great exploits by faith. It was zeal for God's name that Peneus took up a javelin and stabbed the fornicators through in the camp. And God says, he's zealous with my zeal. Leave him alone. Just to show you at times that God, remarkable appearances, remarkable expressions of zeal. Zeal caused the prophets to lay down their lives and many of them forced to live in holes in the ground. In other words, to sacrifice their bodies, to sacrifice their comforts, to sacrifice themselves if need be. It was zeal that caused Jesus to fashion a whip and to go into the temple and to beat and drive out the greedy, idolatrous tax collectors. Zeal is a powerful, powerful thing. The, the Puritan Horatius Bonar says, a believing man will be a zealous man. Faith makes a man zealous. Faith shows itself by zeal, not by zeal for a party or a zeal for a system or zeal for an opinion, but for zeal for Christ. That's what I mean by it has a goal. Zeal for his church and zeal for carrying out the work of God on earth. That's right. That's when you know it's genuine zeal. Zeal for Christ, zeal for the church, and zeal for the gospel. That's genuine zeal. And that's what these men had. Genuine zeal also comes from a genuine heart. It's given by God, and it comes from your own heart. It doesn't need to be manipulated. But there is a level of self-induced zeal within every one of us. We need to, as Isaiah says, we need to stir ourselves up to lay hold of God. Do you do that? Do you do that? Do you stir yourself up to lay hold of Him by reminding yourself of His great works, of who He is, of His great promises, of His word, of His existence? Do you stir yourself up to lay hold of Almighty God? You know what zeal is? Zeal is put into our heart so that God can fan the flame of holy ambitions that He has put into our hearts. That's what zeal is given for, so that we can be set ablaze for the glory of God. Titus didn't need to be manipulated. Look at what it says here. Yes, he accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, that's a good translation, very earnest, Titus went of his own choice. The emphasis, therefore, is on Titus's personal effort, on Titus's personal zeal, on his self-motivated effort. Do you have that? Ask yourself, do you have a self-motivated zeal? Are you able to stir yourself, or do you always need prodding? Do you know your God in such a way that just beholding your God will stir you up to love God and to love people? I believe this is what Titus had. What a great quality. 
And Paul uses a very rare word to describe a very rare servant. He uses this Greek word that exactly means that. Very earnest. In other words, rare zeal. Zeal that you don't see all the time. Zeal that doesn't blow across the church every day. This, was, this man had a rare zeal for God. He was one of those men that you just want to learn from, that you just want to sit at his feet and find out more about your God, that you want to sit there and just stand in awe of his sacrifice. Can we think of men like that? I can. Do you study missions? I pray that you would. I pray that you will take up simple biographies like there's that Hero of the Fate series, real short series. You could just read bios of different missionaries, Jonathan Edwards, Wesley. You have different people in there, and you have other, right, other biographies that you can read. But read a biography on Adoniram Judson. Read a biography on John Patton. Read a biography on William Carey. Read a biography on these zealous missionary men and women of God, Jim Elliott, or whoever you might be thinking of, so that you can learn from their example and imitate their faith. As, Paul, as uh, the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Next, not only does biblical leadership uh, demand genuine zeal, but it also demands cooperation. Okay? It also demands cooperation from these men who, out of their own heart, were self-motivated to do these things and even that owing to a work of God in their lives. Look at verse 18 and 19. He says, We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Oh, what a great legacy, right? What a wonderful legacy. Even though we don't know his name. Who cares about his name? We want to learn from his legacy. We want to learn from his faith. The important thing is not that he be famous, the important thing is that the fame of his zeal goes out and encourages the churches. He says, not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us. And when he says administered by us, I think there he's using what is called an epistolary plural. In other words, Paul is really the, the one that is administering this gift through the agency of these men. But here, if you trace back the personal pronouns, which you don't do that really in a sermon unless I bog you down to death with all of his grammar. But when he says administered by us, it's probably an epistolary plural referring to Paul himself. He says, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. Now, in the midst of all of that, I see a great amount of cooperation in the church. I see individuals co cooperating with the church. I see churches cooperating with one another. So there's this vast network of cooperation that I think is absolutely essential for a healthy ministry and for biblical leadership. You can't be a good leader if you think you're the only leader, right? You can't be a good leader if you think your church is the only church worth going to and you have no relationship with any other churches because they don't see spot on with everything that you, that you see. I have plenty of Arminian friends, and I can't tell you how much, much I disagree. Well, you know how much I disagree. You know, I have one friend who is a wild Arminian, wild 
a Pentecostal, a, a, a charismatic brother. And I disagree with him really uh, a lot. I even sent him an email where, you know, feelings were a little bit hurt and toes were stepped on. That's, I'm just showing you the nature of our relationship. But I love this brother because he's doing an incredible work for God. And I don't, my, my aim is not to cut him off because I don't agree with his charismatic theology. I don't agree with his Arminianism. There has to be a certain level of cooperation with other churches. I think it's good. It's healthy for us. We could go so far as to say that for the Apostle Paul, he didn't do anything without cooperating with the local church. Do you know that? Nothing. Everything he did from the beginning of his conversion to the end of his life was in conjunction to the local church. If a ministry does not have that, whether it's a parachurch organization, whether it's a seminary organization, whether it's a missionary organization, whatever, there has to be some interaction, some connection to a local church, in my opinion. You ought to work in conjunction with the local church. And that is a God-glorifying thing. You can see it in Paul's life, Paul's missionary journeys. It wasn't until the church had chosen that he and Barnabas were to go out in the name of the Lord and on his missionary journeys. You can see it in his financial dealings, which is the context here. If you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul there uses an interesting phrase when he says, nobody else worked with us in giving and receiving except for you alone. The word giving and receiving is actually ancient language for receipt-keeping. See, some commentators have suggested Paul kept meticulous receipts of all his expenditures. And that's not too far-fetched from the use, because oftentimes that phraseology is used in accounting language. So Paul was an integrous man, and he did everything through and from the local church. Now, to this brother... The brother, it says, whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Well, the word things is not in the original. So it just says, the brother who in the gospel through the churches. Well, so we got to supply a, a little bit of translation because we're not Greek speakers. It just doesn't, it's not just instant for us like it was for them. So it means something like this. This brother, his fame... In, in, in the gospel, in gospel things, in gospel ministry is probably what it means, right? Was It was renowned. It was famous. He had a good reputation among the churches, and that's where it starts. You want to be used in the church? You have to have a good reputation in the church. You want to be used in the church of God? You can't be known for being the divisive one, the argumentative one, for being the one that's always causing, up, causing trouble, the unfaithful one. The one whose life never, just never seems to get on board with what God is doing in the local church. No, but you want to have a good reputation among the churches. It bolsters your, your character. And I believe this brother has two ways in which he was also commendable. He was commendable for two reasons, his zeal and his gifts. His zeal and his gifts, and they were both gospel-centered. Again, he had gospel-centered zeal. It says, his fame in the things of the gospel. Now, maybe this brother was an eloquent preacher. Maybe he was like Apollos, and he was a gifted orator. 
Maybe he was a skilled teacher. He was a scholar. Maybe he was like Barnabas. He liked to work behind the scenes and encourage others. Whatever the nature of his ministry was, maybe he was like Philip, and he just went all over the place evangelizing. You know, there are a lot of brothers like that right now in the church. You probably know some of them. We've had some of them here. But they have ministries where all they do is go and evangelize nonstop, and their church will send them out. And uh, that is also a possibility. But whatever the nature of this brother's ministry was, we know it was connected to the gospel, and we know that the local church affirmed him in the gospel. Now, a very close parallel to this context is in 3 John 5 through 7. You've heard me read this before. 3 John 5 through 7. Just to show you further the cooperation of the churches. It says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially, speaking here to Gaius, especially when they are strangers and they have testified to your love before the church, you will, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You hear that language of sending? That is official language for formal ministry. That's not just haphazard language. That is semi-technical, we could say, semi-technical language for some sort of ecclesiastical recognition of the gifts of this brother, of the gifts of these brothers here who went out for the sake of the name, not accepting anything from the Gentiles. In other words, these are brothers, whoever they were, and they went out for the sake of the name, meaning they went out to further God's name, to spread God's name. They went out in the, in the authority of God's name, and so they were probably engaged, of course, in evangelism. And they did that in a manner that was so deserving of or affirmation that John says, look, affirm these guys. Send them out in a worthy manner. Receive them. Recognize them. Use them. Affirm them. Support them. Support them. The next thing is that this brother, he wasn't just zealous in the things of the gospel, but he was also probably administratively gifted, right? Because that's the context. He says not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches, more cooperation there, to travel with us in this gracious gift. Uh, you know, this word that he uses here, that he was appointed by the churches, that word there, appointed, is the same word. It's also a very rare word in the New Testament. But it's the same word that is used in Acts chapter 14 for officially installing elders. Acts 14, verse 23 Paul and Barnabas there officially install elders in the church. And that word is used right here of this man. That he was formally recognized somehow by the churches, plural. The various churches would attest to this man's giftedness. And he was probably gifted in an administrative way because that's what he's being called to do, to travel to administer a financial gift. A financial gift of epic proportion, by the way. I think I said last time when we were in this chapter that it, the collection probably took about five years according to, uh, according to certain uh, scholars' uh, estimation that during, during uh, Paul's missionary journeys, this collection probably took up to five years to bring it all together. It was, it was quite an elaborate uh, uh, gift to a whole church. 
But let me just point this out. The church had identified his gifts. The church had affirmed his gifts. And the church had put his gifts to use. Now, that's the way it should work. That's the way it should work if you're doing the most minimal tasks in the church. But especially if you're doing, uh, if you're an officer of the church, if you're a deacon or you're an elder, or if you're gifted to do other things. And let's say maybe you're a gifted teacher. And somebody is going to recognize your gifts, and, and the church is going to affirm your gifts, and because of that, the church will probably utilize your gifts. And that's the way it works. On top of that, it also seems that their, that their character matched their gifts. Why do I say that? Look at verse 22. If you're there, 2 Corinthians 8. Look at verse 22. Very, very important text. Speaking now of the second brother that is introduced in this passage, this is what it says, that that brother we have often tested and found diligent in many things. See, there was a testing period. There was a testing ground. There, was, there, there, were, there were little projects that this brother was probably was put on. Hey, do this. Let's see how he does if we hand him this. And often tested and often tested. And guess what? He was often approved. He consistently passed the test. You know what that spells out? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. And for the ministry of the local church, there's nothing greater than faithfulness. To see a faithful brother is rare. To see a faithful sister serve in the church is rare nowadays. I think our church is filled with them. But I pray that it would be fuller even more that would be even more filled with people, that every one of us, no matter if we went person by person, we could say, this brother is faithful. This sister, faithful. Their character is so proven that it's been tested. No, you don't know. We have years of history where we've seen this person's conduct and their, and their faithfulness and the fact that when things are entrusted to them, it gets done. It gets done. That's beautiful. But you know what? He'd been, found, he'd been found diligent. So obviously, the brother in verse 18 has also probably in the same way been tested and found diligent over a period of time. And let me stress the word time, right? Because I don't care how many gifts you have. Sometimes, pardon the pun, it takes time to see if you are who you say you are. That's why in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul says, be careful that you don't raise up a novice, or the word that he uses there actually referring to a recent convert, probably more accurate, that you, that you raise up someone who was recently converted to Christ for the position of an elder. I think an elder should be a, probably be a Christian. I, I hate to put a time on it because then you guys will hold me to it. <laughs> But I think he needs to be saved for more than five years. I think he needs to be saved for closer to ten. You know, that'd be nice. But uh, there are those extraordinary exceptions, and guess which is the one that everybody always cites? Well, Spurgeon was only saved when he was, you know. Well, you're not Spurgeon, are you? <laughs> and unless you have the gifts that Spurgeon had, which were extraordinary, that's a rarity. But if you're like the rest of us, just sort of normal, you know, average in many ways, okay, we need some years of testing. We need to see you go through some stuff. We need to see you go through life and see if you don't apostatize. 
because I have seen so much. I tell you what, I have seen so much apostasy, dear brothers and sisters. I, you know, people talk to me, oh, I know this one brother, this one brother that I used to know in the church, and, you know, this happened, this happened, all of a sudden they apostasized. Did you hear about that guy that apostatized? Well, unfortunately, I have had the sad experience of being part of a church where I saw scores of people, listen to me now, scores of people that were infected with liberalism, went into false doctrine like the new perspective, and you got that on tape, you can spread that around, these, these new views of justification, and they end up in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and they end up in Greek Orthodoxy and in Roman Catholicism, and before you know it, up on their Facebook page, their status is deist, agnostic, you know, atheist. These are men that used to teach me the Bible. And that's why sometimes you just need time to see. Are they going to withstand the trials of life? Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 4. Trials produce character. Trials. I don't care how gifted you are with, with what seminary taught you. You can't teach this in a course, in a session, in a sermon. You can't go, you can't get a degree in character. You know where you go for a degree in character? You go into the furnace of affliction. And that's where your character is built. That's where, you, that's where God is fashioning a preacher. That's where God is fashioning a faithful deacon is in the midst of trials and affliction, in the midst of just the long haul of life. Or is that person always complaining about life? Is that person always complaining about, about how terrible work is and always complaining about just how terrible life's trials are? Guess what? You have been predestined for these things. How are you going to handle it? How are you going to just receive that? That God has preordained, specifically fashioned trials for your life. Isn't that amazing? God has specifically, meticulously fashioned the trial that I will go through next week. He fashioned it. It's from his hand. Job said, oh, we receive blessing from God and not adversity. He has torn us, but he will heal us. In the same way, brothers and sisters, when God puts us through the fires of affliction, he's testing our character. James chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, Romans chapter 5. Do I need to go on? Scripture universally teaches that this is the way that God will sanctify his people. In the world, you will have philipsis, crushing. Jesus said this. You will have a crushing experience in the world, tribulation. You will be pressed. And what is, he, what is the commandment? The commandment is not even endure. Just hang in there. Jesus actually commands us to do what? Cheer up. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So it must mean that there has to be a looking to Christ in the midst of our trials. There's got to be a looking to Him and a gazing upon the victory that's in Jesus. Or yeah, 
If you look at your bills, if you look at your trials, if you look at the fact that you just got laid off and you got a baby on the way, real experience happening at our church right now, you could get overwhelmed. You could be crushed under the weight of that. And you could respond in great ungodliness. And so I think these men were tested in the sense that they had been looked at and seen and observed over the years, how they went through trials, how they handled ministry, their maturity level, and they passed the test. And now they're ready for service. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. The ministry of the church is appointing, that, that the church is appointing these men to is ultimately for the glory of God. That's what he says. He says, they were appointed to be with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself. You see, that's what all ministry is about. The glory of God is on the line. It's not just about doing acts of kindness to people. Anyone can do that. The Red Cross is out there helping people do that. But are they doing it for the glory of the Lord? Do you realize that all ministry, that in ministry, the glory of God is on the line? His honor, his fame, his name, his reputation. God often got angry with the Israelites because they would cause the Gentiles to blaspheme his name. In like manner, in ministry, we cannot live in such a way that people would be caused to blaspheme. Christian ministry is first and foremost vertical. It is Godward. Lastly, biblical leadership demands universal honor. Look at verse 20. Taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. Very convicting words here from the Apostle Paul. So this is a a mark of integrity, financial integrity in particular. That's the focus here. But Paul was very cautious to stress the fact that he was seeking to do what was right so that no one would discredit the work. And the word there, discredit, literally means to find fault. You know what the word implies? It implies that someone's looking around for ways to find fault. And he's saying, I want to make sure that we administer this financial gift so that when people go looking around, they don't find anything that they can say, see, he did steal money from the collection." (laughs) or whatever. But he did it in such a way to stay upright. And he says here that, that they were administrating a generous gift. That's not by accident. He is stressing what's at stake. He doesn't even use the word generosity. That's actually a bad translation. He uses the word abundance, super abundance. That's what this gift contained. He saw it as an abundantly lavished financial gift on the line. And when you're dealing with big money, okay, you better have big integrity in the midst of that. I'll never forget a church nearby, a church I used to go to in Southern California, father and son pastor team got popped for stealing uh, over a course of 20 years, $5 million from the church. I mean, what were these men thinking? That's what I say. This kind of character that Paul's talking about here is rare. This is rare. That type of thing is sadly happening all over the place. And that's why Paul says he he uses great precaution. Just look at this language here. He says if we use great precaution, and the precaution, the word precaution literally means to shun something. It means to keep away from something, to avoid it at all cost. So 
I think by the time that this was written, this word that Paul uses kind of was, became sort of like an idiom, an expression, okay, that meant to take precaution. So I think it's a good translation. And he kept away from any financial impropriety whereby his ministry could be assaulted or undermined. And he did this in every area of life, brothers and sisters. 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, Our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in carnal wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. An upright ministry. An upright ministry. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, you are, you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and how uprightly and how blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers. That's what all true ministers of God should aim for right there. Should aim to be able to go up to the church and say, you know how uprightly we have behaved toward you. You know how we've dealt with you. We've not manipulated you. We've not spiritually abused you. We've not exercised or lorded our authority over you. But we've done it in such a way that is blameless. Acts chapter 23, the apostle Paul makes this incredible statement. Incredible integrity right here. Acts 23 verse 1, Paul, looking intently at the council, he said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfect conscience before God up to this day. Wow! No wonder God chose to use this man to set the bar for all of us. With a perfectly good conscience before God, he says, to this day. That's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it doesn't matter what you judge me to be. He says, for me to be judged by you is a very small thing. <laughs> I like that. That's the power of integrity right there. What you think of my ministry, oh yeah, I, I, you know, I think Paul, he's a pretty good man. I, he's a good minister. He's done some good things. It means nothing. Because Paul also knows in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. He's the one that's going to judge him. You see people walk around with tattoos, right? Only God can judge me. Have you seen that? I see gangbangers and stuff, you know, where stuff like, only God can judge me, man. You know what? You should erase that tattoo and put, oh, God will judge you. He will judge you. And that's a very fearful thing. Lastly here, universal honor comes from consistent living. Paul makes this issue of honor very clear. His honor was just lived out before man. It was lived out in front of the world. It wasn't just lived out, you know, he, it could have been real easy for Paul to focus just on his spiritual life and say, oh, I'm a man of prayer. I'm a man of study. Oh, I'm a man of, you know, deep devotion inside. I have a deep devotional life with God. But he also says he lived in this honorable way before man. He sought, he pursued what was honorable also in the sight of men. In the sight of men. That's right. Which is such a hard thing to do. Because we're so hard on each other, right? Men, we are such, sometimes I think we're stricter judges than God. We could just so pick each other apart. And Paul says, look, I seek to live in an honorable way, in a blameless way, before man. 
before man. That God has always called his people to this. You remember Abraham when God confirmed his covenant? We've been studying that in Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 17. You remember when God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm summoning you for this one special task. I'm going to make a covenant bond with you. We are going to be in a covenant. We're going to be glued together with a covenant. And this is what I require of you, Abraham. He says, now when Abraham was 99 years old... Never too late to get started on integrity. 99! <laughs> He's right on the precipice. He's a century-old man. And God said, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Wow! Let's close in prayer. Because there's nothing else that needs to be said besides that. Our God is God Almighty. Why do you walk blameless? Why do you walk in the way that you do? Why do you try to live a holy life? Because your God is God Almighty. He is an almighty being. He is almighty God. His judgments are almighty. His heaven is almighty. His hell is almighty. It flows from the being that is himself almighty. Jonathan Edwards preached a, a sermon entitled, In Hell is the Wrath Inflicted from an Almighty Being. Oh, it's just terrifying to think about. But that is our God, brothers and sisters. Our God is the Almighty God, the all-able the all one, the all-omnipotent one. And it is before this all-searching God, this all-knowing God, this omni-God, that we are to walk before in absolute blameless holiness. Did Abraham do it? No. Because God is not just an almighty judge, almighty, you know, sovereign, but he is also an all-merciful God, all-gracious, abounding in mercy and grace. And his covenant partner, Abraham, deserved not to partake of the covenant any longer because he did not walk blameless. We know his sins. He sinned greatly in many ways. But God still was faithful to his word. You and I are Abrahams. We're unfaithful. We miss the mark. We sin. We fail God. We break the covenant all the time. We don't measure up. But God lavishes you with his grace every day that you wake up. Every time you get up, every time you repent and you move on, more and more and more and more grace for undeserving sinners like you and I. Where your grace abounds, or where your sin abounds, his grace abounds that much more. When we are faithless, he remains faithful. Be encouraged today. You say, my character is not like that, what you're talking about. I don't have that character. I'm all messed up. My character's not good. If you look at my life, you look inside my life, my, fans, my finances are in shambles, my marriage is in shambles, my, our home is in shambles, our parenting is in shambles, uh, my zeal is just not there, uh, I just don't study the Bible like people do in this church, I'm just not there. And what I would say to you is be encouraged, because I am sure that there was a time 
where these men that, that are now time-tested, approved, affirmed, installed in the ministry, I am sure there was a time when they just didn't measure up either. Be encouraged. Your God is a God that can refine you. Peter was such a humiliated minister. How would you like to stand before your church week after week knowing that you denied the Lord Jesus Christ with cuss words? How absolutely demoralizing for a pastor. And yet, Jesus brought him to the end of himself, didn't he? John chapter 21, do you love me? Stop saying that you love me. Stop it. I'm not going to repeat it again. I want you to recognize the principle that's more important than your confessions. And that is that I know who you are. I know what's in you. You better rely on me or you're toast. And that's exactly what God is doing in our lives, brothers and sisters, is bringing us to a point where we cannot rely on ourselves. We can't point to our great integrity. All we can do is say, oh, God, you know who I am. I'm at your mercy. Have mercy on me. Please do with me what you did with Peter. Make me fit again. Reinstall me. Brothers, if God works in your life like that, we won't condemn you. Far be it from me to hold something over you that God forgives. Far be it from us to not be a gracious church, not be gracious enough to forgive those transgressions and those wicked, wicked iniquities that God has so graciously made perfectly white as snow in his own dealings with sinners. Oh, we need to be more gracious with one another. Father, give us grace to repent of our gracelessness. And then, Lord, give us a fire and a zeal to be men and women of rare and spectacular integrity. Give us men and women that have a passion and a zeal to walk blameless. Oh, God, we are not 99 years old. With the strength that you have given us and the life that and the years that we have left, help us to walk differently than we did before we walked into this church today. You are gracious enough. You are good enough. You are mighty enough, almighty God, to sanctify us, to purify us, and to make us fit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.